the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. It's about seven minutes after four o'clock. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is our engineer. Today we'll talk with Scott McKnight. He's the author of Reading Romans Backwards, a gospel of peace in the midst of empire. And uh, Scott McKnight is a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. He directs both a master's and doctor of ministry program in using a a context to interpret the New Testament. So looking forward to uh, giving you an opportunity to hear what he has to say about the value of reading Romans backwards. Well, today is National Radio Day. It's a time to honor one of the most longstanding electronic media and its role in our everyday lives. Now, radio has been around for a very long time. It delivers information and news and entertainment. Um, it uh, provides company to millions of Americans, every well, millions of people all over the world, every hour of every day. Listeners and broadcasters, producers and stations celebrate the 20th of August as National Radio Day. And although there's not one authoritative source on the history of National Radio Day, it was decided that August the 20th would be an appropriate day because... 8MK, which is now WWJ in Detroit, a radio station, first broadcast on the 20th of August in 1920. Now, according to Wikipedia, WWJ uh, uh, debuted as the Detroit News radio phone and was the outgrowth of interest in radio technology by the publishers of the Detroit News, combined with uh, inventor Lee DeForest's longtime promotion of radio broadcasting. And the rest, as they say, is history. I'm often asked the question, how did you start in radio? It was not something I aspired to. I didn't train for it, which you probably are thinking, yeah, obviously you did not. Uh, But I worked for Oregon Right to Life at the time that I intersected with KPDQ, and I was uh, working with their PR team. Well, me and one other guy, we were the PR team. And occasionally I was invited by Lou Davies, who was the long-term host of uh, the Lou Davies program to um, talk about the work of Oregon Right to Life. I had come in a couple of times. I remember being extremely nervous and uh, received a call from the general manager who asked me if I'd ever given thought to doing radio. When he first asked if I'd come and speak with him in his office, my first thought was, he's going to (laughs) uninvite me to ever return to the station. But he asked me if I'd ever given thought to radio. And I had listened to Lou Davies over the years. And always thought how much fun that that would be to uh, to do talk radio, which for me was a relatively new phenomenon. I wasn't familiar with its long and storied history. Anyway, um, I said at the time, because I recognized that my time at Oregon Right to Life was drawing to a close and I knew that God was leading me somewhere else, but I had no idea. Well, I started at KPDQ. In fact, it will be 30 years in October of this year. I know I can hardly believe I can say I've done anything for 30 years besides breathe, but yes, uh, 30 years in October of this year. I started out hosting on our AM station a women's program, and it was a 30-minute program 
extremely nervous, uh, but I started there and then eventually uh, co-hosted the program that Lou Davies had hosted for many, many years. And we were live at four, I think was the name of the program that the two of us uh, co-hosted. He left um, some years later and I ended up hosting the program uh, by myself where I have uh, remained to this day. So now, Clark, I, I asked you earlier if you would be willing to tell us how you started in radio, because this is National Radio Day, and I actually don't know your story and think it's kind of interesting. How did you get started in radio? You don't know my story, but you think it's interesting? Is that what you I think it's interesting to find out how people end up where they are. I'll let you know at the end if yours was interesting or not. I started in college at the University of Portland and uh, worked for a couple stations there, one that was a student station. And one that was not, but that had a lease from the university. And uh, from there, I bounced over to some part-time jobs in Portland after college. Ended up at the Oregon coast uh, about a year and a half after graduating. Uh, Ended up at another job in Eugene after that. And then sort of retired. Sort of. (laughs) Sort of. For about two years, I was doing something else entirely. And then when we moved up here to Portland in 2008... Uh, James found me. James had worked for me at one point. James Blend? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, right after college, actually. And uh, anyway, he said, oh, I think we might have an opening over here. I'm like, yeah, I'm not getting back in. I'm done. And then I changed my mind about uh, a month later. Like, <laughs> you yeah, try to get out yeah. of radio and they just keep yeah. pulling you back. And so it'll be 11 years that I've been here. Uh, in uh, October, mid-October. So both of us, our anniversaries are in October. Mine's the 1st of October. Yours is the mid, but at least the same month. I started in September of 89. So when you uh, started in college, were you being trained to do radio, or was this something you just enjoyed and fell into? No, it was something that I had wanted to do, and the student station wasn't exactly a great training ground um, because nobody really knew what they were doing. Um, so not much has changed. <laughs> we have yeah. no idea what we're doing here. Yeah. Um, at the end of my f- uh, first semester of my freshman year, I had the opportunity to go to this station that had a lease from the University of Portland at the time. And uh, I started working for them. And I fell under uh, direction of a great program director who's still in the business, I think, in uh, eastern Washington now. Uh, and I learned a lot from him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a, a great mentor. A lot of those guys that I worked under there were great mentors. So, And I worked off and on at that place until the summer after – I think it was after uh, the summer of 94. Mm-hmm. So, it's interesting. Uh, Most people assume that if you do radio, pretty much all you do is speak into a microphone. That's essentially all I do. I mean I spend the day researching and preparing and all of that. But for most real radio people, and I consider you real radio people – there's a lot more to your job than what comes out of a microphone. Can you describe just a little bit of, I uh, you know that you host the gospel saying and people mean, are familiar what do I do with you here? there. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So I come in and we have a, a whole group of radio stations here. So there are various things I need to do for a handful of them. Um, I do some show prep and stuff for the evening and... Uh, I have to do some voice tracks for that. I oh, get voice the, track is? Uh, that's uh, the electronic recording of our voices on the computer. So this, that when you hear— What we're doing right now is live, but a lot of what we do here 
you would could say it's live on tape. <clears throat> yeah. So when you hear Clark's voice at midnight, he's not sitting here yeah, in the engineer's yeah, booth. Yeah. And then I uh, put together the gospel sing throughout the week. Usually on Mondays, I'm getting the music set up and then I'm doing the tracking for that throughout uh, the rest of the week. As we had to tell some people a gospel sing live, it's there is somebody here on Saturday nights, but it's not me. The show is pre-recorded, so sorry and, to break that illusion. But. <laughs> yeah, well, that's so that we can go home and see our families. Yeah, absolutely. We kind of want to have a family life yeah. too. Anyway, today is National Radio Day. There you have it. The history of two of the least interesting people you'll ever want to meet. (laughs) We're going to take a break, but when we come back, we'll take a look at some of the headlines. Also, we'll talk with Scott McKnight, reading Romans backwards, a gospel of peace in the midst of empire. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Looking at some of the day's headlines, Democratic Representatives Rashida Tlaib of Michigan and Ilhan Omar of Minnesota condemned Israel's recent decision to impose restrictions on visiting the country with the two members of the so-called squad calling on Congress to get involved. However, one... um, Uh, Andrew McCarthy believes their attempts to travel to Israel last week were nothing but a farce. It was a political stunt from the beginning, says Andrew McCarthy from America's newsroom. I was glad to see that they called her on it because once she said, oh, never mind, I don't want to come in the first place. I think it put the lie to the whole escapade. Uh, Israel has a law on the books that makes promotion if you um, have an uh, an alien that is a non-Israeli who is promoting the BDS movement, which is boycott, divestiture and sanctions. They consider that an attempt to dismantle and ultimately destroy the Jewish state, McCarthy added. The two Muslim lawmakers held their news conference with Palestinian American and Jewish American residents of Minnesota, who said they also have been affected adversely by travel restrictions to Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Their statements came after White House fired back at Democrats with reports that they may be considering legislative action against Ron Dermer, Israel's ambassador to Washington, and David Friedman, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, in retaliation. Disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein was uh, will was filed in the U.S. Virgin Island, and uh, it showed that he signed it uh, on the 8th of August, two days before investigators said he hanged himself in his New York City jail cell. The accused trafficker and convicted pedophile was worth $577 billion or about $18 million more than he previously stated in court papers. When he had tried to land bail on federal sex trafficking charges, the New York Post reported, citing new court documents, the 66-year-old put all of his holdings in a trust referred to as the 1953 Trust in Court Papers, named after the year he was born, the document revealed. There there were no details on the trust's beneficiaries. The court uh, papers noted that Epstein, his only potential heir is his brother, Mark Epstein. A group of states is preparing to move forward with a joint antitrust investigation of big technology companies, the Wall Street Journal reports. The probe involving various state attorneys general is expected to be launched as soon as next month and may focus on whether a handful of technology platforms use their marketplace dominance to stifle competition. Google, Facebook, Amazon and Apple are four companies that are likely to be the focus of the investigation. And the Trump administration issued new policy guidance on Monday, tightening the rules for awarding discretionary work permits to immigrants who have been temporarily allowed into the United States for urgent humanitarian reasons or significant public benefit under the Immigration and uh, Nationality Act. 
Section 212 of the Immigration and Nationality Act affords the Department of Homeland Security the discretion to decide when to afford aliens entry under extraordinary circumstances, such as to visit a dying relative or obtain life-saving medical treatment. The one-time entry is a privilege, not a right, and the administration's guidance made clear that officials were wary it was being abused. House Minority Whip Steve Scalise asked what it would take for liberals to denounce violence against conservatives after a Democratic state senator from Illinois came under fire last weekend over pictures showing his supporters at a fundraising event taking part in a mock assassination of the president. Photos posted by a witness showed supporters of Senator Martin Sandoval, who represents Illinois' 11th district, including parts of Chicago, acting out in front of guests, according to WCIA. Senator uh, Sandoval apologized. Apologized and called the actions unacceptable, but Scalise, who was gravely wounded in 2017 by a gunman who targeted Republican House members as they practiced for congressional baseball, said that uh, wasn't enough. Condemnation must come from Democratic leadership, he told uh, Laura Ingram on the Ingram angle. Several senior White House officials have begun discussing whether to push for a temporary payroll tax as a way to arrest an economic downturn. The Washington Post reveals um, that even though deliberations about the payroll tax cut were held on Monday, the White House released a statement disputing that the idea was actively under consideration. Last week, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit affirmed that border officials may conduct suspicionless manual searches of cell phones. But as Reason's Damon Root uneasily writes, the U.S. Supreme Court has long recognized a border search exception to the Fourth Amendment's normal warrant requirement. But the court has yet to address whether that exception deserves to hold sway in the current era of smartphones and related high-tech devices. Senator Elizabeth Warren's uh, presidential campaign removed her DNA test ancestry video on Monday as her campaign attempts to put the issue behind her. The Warren campaign scrubbed their uh, launch video where it showed Warren taking a rather talking about a DNA test, which was supposed to counter President Donald Trump's attack on her heritage. The release on Warren's DNA test results was not well received as the test revealed she could uh, be anywhere from 164th to 1,024th Native American. New York Police Department officer Daniel Pantelio has been fired five years after he was filmed putting his arms around Aaron, Eric Gardner's neck while trying to arrest him for allegedly selling loose cigarettes, according to the Daily Wire. Uh, this despite the Justice Department opting not to charge the officer last month. Um, uh, The analysis in the case in 2014 ultimately concluded that the case isn't exactly black or white. Only half of all Americans now have a positive view of colleges and universities, according to a new survey from Pew Research. Reasons Robbie Suave reveals the number of people who take a negative view has increased from 26 percent in 2012 to 38 percent in 2019. The change largely reflects a growing dissatisfaction on the right with the culture of college campuses. The percentage of Republicans who see values uh, in higher education has collapsed in recent years from 53 percent in 2012 to just 23 percent in 2019. One explanation is because on campus reform observes social justice majors and other just social justice theme activities are becoming an increasingly regular occurrence on college campuses. And the U.S. military conducted the first test of a ground-launched cruise missile since the United States withdrew from the landmark 1987 Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with Russia this month. Five months after American-backed forces ousted the Islamic State from at least uh, shared territory in Syria, the terrorist group is gathering new strength. 
conducting guerrilla attacks across Iraq and Syria, retooling its financial networks and targeting new recruits at an allied run tent camp. American and Iraqi military and intelligence officers said on this day in history in 1960, the Soviet Union and other Warsaw Pact nations invade Czechoslovakia. On this day in history, 1977, the space probe Voyager 2 is launched. It continues to explore to this day and is now more than 11 billion miles from Earth. And on this day in 2000, Tiger Woods wins the PGA Championship, becoming the first player since 1953 to win three majors in one year. Former Senate Democratic leader Harry Reid, he had some pretty harsh words for his party's presidential candidates. He rejected some of their health care and immigration policies as too extreme to resonate with voters in a general election. Now, what typically happens is you pivot to the middle, whether you're on the right or the left. But he's suggesting this may do more damage than a simple pivot can remedy. Reid, during a newly published interview with Vice, uh, uh, Vice, specifically took aim at Medicare for All and calls by many candidates to decriminalize illegal border crossings. The blunt-talking former Nevada Senate uh, senator suggested any Democratic nominee running on these issues could face trouble, saying people want a fair immigration system. They don't want an open-door invitation for everybody to come at once, Reid said in an interview with Vice. When asked if supporting decriminalization could be bad for Democrats in 2020, Reid said, of course it is. Reid accused Democrats of not having their priorities in order going into the election. There are so many more important things to do. Decriminalizing border crossings is not something that should be at the top of the list, he said, stating that it should be way, way down at the bottom. Reid also argued that his party has it wrong when it comes to health care by pushing for dramatic new systems like Medicare for all instead of retooling what voters already use. I think that we should focus on improving Obamacare, he said, echoing a point made by former Vice President Joe Biden. We can do that without bringing something that would be much harder to sell. As with the immigration policies espoused by many of the 2020 candidates, the former senator said, of course, a platform of single payer health care would be problematic for any nominee next year. How are you going to uh, get it passed? He wondered. Senator Bernie Sanders is the most prominent supporter of Medicare for all. But the policy has steadily gained support in recent years, including from influential freshman members of Congress. The former Senator Reid is not endorsing any candidate just yet as he's waiting for the Nevada caucus which is scheduled for the 22nd of February of next year, just weeks after the opening primary contest in Iowa and New Hampshire. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Scott McKnight, author of Reading Romans Backwards, a gospel of peace in the midst of empire. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Acclaimed New Testament scholar, best-selling author, and popular blogger Dr. Scott McKnight proposes a new way to read the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, an epistle that he says has shaped Western Christianity more than any other book of the Bible. Christians have been missing the point of Romans. In reading the letter backwards, as he proposes, Paul's true intent comes into focus. Romans is about a way of life. And Dr. McKnight says in reading Romans backwards, a gospel of peace in the midst of empire. Reading Romans backwards clarifies Paul's focus on real life pastoral concerns and his message of reconciliation and living in fellowship as siblings for both the weak 
and the strong. The epistle offers a sustained lesson on achieving peace among all people, applicable to divided churches, ancient and modern. Well, Dr. Scott McKnight is a recognized authority on New Testament, early Christianity, and the historical Jesus, is the Julius Manti Chair of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Liesel, uh, Illinois, the author or editor of some 75 books. Dr. McKnight is a sought-after speaker to churches, conferences, college, colleges, and seminaries um, here and around the world. Dr. McKnight is a member of the Society of Biblical Literature and the Society for New Testament Studies. He joins us today to talk about his uh, latest book, Reading Romans Backwards, The Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. Dr. McKnight, thank you so much for joining us today. Georgine, it's an honor to be with you again. Thank you. As I was uh, describing the book to our listeners uh, in promoting our conversation today, uh, I wanted to emphasize that you don't need to have special powers, you don't need to walk backwards while reading, uh, but that the title of the book says precisely what you intend, that reading the, the book of Romans backwards from the end to the beginning reveals something about uh, Paul's heart that we might not otherwise uh, pick up. Now, he wrote it from start to finish. How did you discover that uh, looking at what he says in the end and working oneself forward uh, reveals perhaps um, elements of Paul's intent that we might otherwise miss? Well, Georgine, one of the principles of, of good communication is to understand our audience as well as possible. So mm-hmm. before we go to speak in places, before we write to places, we try to figure out what's going on there. When we interview someone, they try to study us and figure us out so when they come, they can impress us. Well, Romans 12 through 16 describes what Paul wants the church and churches, the house churches in Rome to do. He describes what these people are like. He describes their problems. He describes the people who were there. We know more about the house churches in Rome than any other uh, house set of house churches or any city to which Paul wrote. So Romans, Romans is a hard letter, Georgine. Everybody mm-hmm. admits that. People get lost in Romans 1 through 4. They are exhausted by the time they get to Romans 9. They read 1 through 8. I, I had a pastor tell me the other day his goal was to preach through Romans. He, he didn't think he'd ever make it to chapter 8. When he finished, he says, I'm done. I don't know if I'll ever be able to get back to Romans. He said it exhausted me. And so I admit that. Romans 1 through 8 is hard. But let, let me make this suggestion. There are four sections in Romans, 1 through 4, 5 through 8, 9 through 11, which is a long section on, of a narrative about Israel and its relationship to Gentiles and God's surprising grace. And then chapters 12 through 16 is what we often call the practical aspect of a Pauline letter. Because Romans 1 through 8, the theology section, is so difficult, many people simply don't get to 12 through 16. And by the time they get there, they're done with 1 through 8. If, however, we study chapters 12 through 16 first and study the audience, what Paul wants the audience to do, we learn about a group of people called the strong. We can learn about a group of people he calls the weak. We learn about some people who don't want to pay their taxes and who seem to be rebellious with respect to Rome. We learn about names of people and abundance of women uh, in house churches in Rome. And all of a sudden, we have a profile, a social profile, a moral profile, um, a lack of reconciliation profile of these house churches. 
And we suddenly realize that that's the context for writing Romans, and that why Paul wrote Romans was not so that we could simply study theology, and, and we can. It's a beautiful letter theologically. He wanted these two groups in Rome to quit fighting with one another, to be able to sit down at a table like siblings at a family table and to talk with one another without arguing. And that's why he wrote this letter. It was to create peace in the heart of the empire to model to the Roman Empire what God's grace could do in a group of people who had never been brought together before. And this was during a very difficult time uh, as well. So this wasn't in uh, peace and safety and everything was going well. This was a challenging season. for So for them to live in the way that Paul writes about in Romans— was uh, very significant. Perhaps it's lost on us because we may not yeah. understand the broader context. Well, you're right. I mean, this Nero's on the on the throne, and Nero um, at the beginning offered some hope for people, and this is why the Jewish uh, folks, the Jewish believers, returned to Rome uh, under the early years of Nero, but. By the time he died, he was just a megalomaniac who was paranoid about everything, and and he became, um, you know, there are words that we shouldn't be using for a man like that, but he was really a massive narcissist, egomaniac, who uh, seemed to be worried about everybody and killing everybody. And this was right in the middle of his reign. The Christian church is beginning to suffer some struggles. And one of the more interesting things is that Paul tells them uh, not to rebel against the empire. So there had to be some people uh, in that house church that thought, you know, we're going to resist what they're telling us to do. So it's it's uh, it was a difficult world. It's, it's unlike most of what um, we as Christians in the United States experience. I, I, I have friends in the United States who can be in very difficult situations and families and workplaces. But by and large, we live in a world where we can pursue justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was a world that was not like that at all. And the easiest thing to do with these people was to kill them. And Paul said, no, we're not going to survive if we start acting like this. We have to be good people and we have to get along with one another. You write in the preface of reading Romans backwards that after listening or reading um, to those meaty chapters uh, written for a theological lectureship rather than uh, we might assume is read, uh, written for a theological lectureship rather than to a local church or a set of house churches in Rome in the first century when Nero was emperor and Paul was planning his future mission to Spain, that sometimes we forget that the book of Romans wasn't written to the scholarly class. It was written to rank and file believers, all relatively new, um, who are learning to live out their faith in a very uh, challenging uh, society. Yes, and, and that's right. It's- Romans, um, you said at the beginning, and Georgine, you're accurate, Romans is the most significant book in the history of Christian theology, and therefore probably in the Christian church. Um, Romans has shaped everything. And because it is a preoccupation with scholars, with theologians, and with pastors, there are many people today who just think the book of Romans is out of their reach. In fact, Georgine, there's so much intense debate about the book of Romans today I know pastors who say, I'm not even going to look at Romans. I preach from Galatians. It seems manageable. Hmm. And that's sad. It's yes. a book. Um, but it was not written for scholars. It was, it was written for the people in the city of Rome who were believers to hear. And I, I make a big deal of this, so I might as well say something. The first century uh, letters were not uh, photocopied and then distributed for everybody to have a handout. They weren't on screens in the front of the churches. 
Uh, they were publicly read aloud in someone's home. And when they were read, they were performed more than they were read the way sometimes we read a book. They were sort of acted out. And I think it was probably Phoebe who did the reading of this letter. She would have read this letter aloud five times at least to all five, and I think there are at least five house churches in Rome, according to Romans 16. She would have read this letter aloud at least five times. She would have performed this letter aloud. It takes about 90 minutes to read Romans well aloud. If you factor in the fact, uh, the observation that when people read letters in the first century, people would have been asking questions. The performance would have paused after a question so people could answer it. Paul asks about 30 questions in Romans 2 through 4. That's going to take a long time of pausing. It's starting to move now like a Mr. Rogers show instead of Sesame Street. Hmm. And it and and she would have had to ask questions, answer questions as people raised their hands. And let's face it, you can't read Romans 1 through 8 without having at least 25 questions. Romans 9 through 11 will generate that many at least. And by the time you get to chapter 12, you've got people in the audience confused and irritated and maybe even angry with one another because Paul seems both uh, to be an equal opportunity critic going after both the strong and the weak. So this letter was read aloud, and I'm guessing it took at least three, four hours to read the letter aloud one time. Hmm. And hmm. she did that probably five times. Who knows, maybe over a couple weeks. This was an intense experience for people to hear from the Apostle Paul, and he was pushing both sides to knock off their claims of privilege and to start acting like siblings at the table. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Dr. Scott McKnight, author of Reading Romans Backwards, many other books as well, A Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Dr. Scott McKnight, his book, Reading Romans Backwards, A Gospel of, of uh, Peace in the Midst of Empire. Romans is about privilege and power. Paul's gospel deconstructs power and privilege. And Paul's lived theology turns power upside down and denies privilege. Let's talk about um, the, the notion of uh, the weak and the strong. Who are the weak and the strong that Paul refers to in Romans and that applies to us in our various roles? Thanks, Georgian. Yes, Romans chapter 14 and 15 discuss, uh, describe two groups of people, um, as Paul tries to get them to get along, the strong and the weak. The weak are Jewish believers who know the privilege of having been raised as the elect people of God in Israel's faith, part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, destined, according to the Bible's promises, to be the center of the world. And they believe that uh, they believed in the Bible, and they believe that Gentiles who became believers in their Jewish Messiah, Jesus, should be as committed to the Bible as they were. In other words, they thought they shouldn't be eating pork, and they thought they should be celebrating Sabbath, and they thought they should be more careful with whom they ate. The strong are Gentile believers who have social status uh, as privilege in the Roman, uh, the city of Rome, and in the Roman Empire. They did not like the idea of following the Jewish law. They disrespected. The word that Paul uses for them is that they despised the weak. The weak judged the strong. 
And Paul uh, sees the privilege of the strong to be people who have experienced the freedom in Christ. They're growing a bit in Christian faith and in their Christian walk as lived theology. And Paul wants them to learn how to get along with Jewish believers. And if Jewish believers don't want to eat bacon and don't want to have ham sandwiches, they shouldn't be forced to do so. And the Jewish believers shouldn't force Gentiles to watch what they eat according to Jewish uh, rules and regulations. So we have in here, in a sense, two ethnic groups who have a sense of privilege, who are not getting along with one another, but who Paul uh, argues and states and clarifies should be seeing one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, as siblings. They should be treating one another as equals in Christ. They should have love for one another. They should contribute to one another. They should look after one another, and they should respect one another's differences. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 14. The Lord has died for each of these. Let each of these people operate according to their own special lights and, in a sense, their own privileged backgrounds. So we have a battle of privilege. And Georgine, I, I firmly believe, and I don't want to get in trouble with anyone here, I believe that this is the way the church in the United States is right now. We have some people who have privileges of the translation they use, or the pastor they follow, or the theology that they have, or the particular theory of the Christian life that they operate with, and they see other people um, as not as not having those things. They look they look down their nose at these people. They're claiming their privilege, while others, the same group of people who are seen as lower-class Christians by one group see themselves as having experienced the freedom of God in Christ, and they, they do things that the other group doesn't like, and they think the other group ought to be doing those same things. We have the same thing going on in the United States, sadly, with respect to politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have people uh, in the church who can hardly stomach the fact that there are people of the opposite political party in their church. And they're allowing those political persuasions to disrupt the fellowship of God in Christ that we have through the Spirit. Um, We have the same thing with ethnicities in the United States. We have the same thing with gender in the United States. And Paul says in Galatians 3.28, one of the things he learned in every church he founded, in every problem that arose, that there is in Jesus Christ, either Jew or Greek, neither slave nor free, male and female, he says in Colossians 3, Scythian or barbarian. We are, in fact, siblings in Christ, and our relationship in Christ transcends every ethnic division, every gender division, every social division, every economic division, every education, I could go on, political division. Our relationship to one another in Christ should transcend those and We should respect the fact that other people who are our siblings have different views than ours, and we should encourage them to think along with us as we learn to think along with them. Mm. Now, this is what you describe as um, Paul's lived theology. This is one element of it. As we understand, starting from the end of Romans and working our way forward, um, how does this help us better understand some of the earlier verses as we consider the context to whom he is writing, where we fit into that um, uh, that tapestry, and how we are to respond to one another? Well, let's um, we could. I mean, Romans is a long letter, but if we read uh, as we read Romans, I, I encourage people, my students, uh, people in my church, my Bible studies. 
when you read at the end of a paragraph in Romans or at the end of a section, you know, italicized uh, words that mark off sections in our translations, ask the question, how would the weak, how would the Jewish believers have responded to this? And how would the strong or the Gentile believers have responded to this? And when you start thinking like this, you begin to notice things you've never seen before. For instance, in the middle of Romans chapter 11, verse 13, Paul says, I now speak to you Gentiles. Now, Paul is not writing to raw Gentiles in the Roman forum. Uh, They're not listening to him. He's writing to the Gentile believers in Rome, and he says, now, these words are for you, which indicated probably that chapter 9-1 all the way through 11-11 or so was for the Jewish believers. And you see there's a lot of Old Testament there. But when he starts talking to the Gentiles, hardly any Old Testament. We find the same thing in Romans 1 through 4, where Paul all of a sudden lights into someone he calls the judge in Romans 2, 1. And it's very strong language as he criticizes them for the way they are understanding Gentile pagan idolaters, is that they sit in judgment on them. And Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're all sinners. And we all need the grace of God. We all become siblings because of the work of God in Christ. The grace of God through the cross and resurrection has made us siblings. So Paul wants us to be seeing, and this is what, Georgine, this is what, someone asked me this question today. Well, why didn't Paul start with chapters 12 to 16? And I said, look, the audiences to whom he wrote this letter were living in chapters 14 Mm -hmm. and 15. They were arguing with one another. And they get this letter, and I think the strong are going, yeah, I like how you're talking here. And the weak are saying, I don't like you picking on us like this. And then all of a sudden, the weak are saying, now, finally, yes, do Jews have an advantage? Much in every way, Paul says. The strong are saying, I don't like that idea. And the weak are saying, I like that. There is a dialogue going on throughout this entire letter. And I would encourage churches and small groups almost to have some uh, role-playing as they become, uh, they have to become familiar with what Paul says in Romans 14 to 15, to read the letter and say, how would you as a weak believer respond to this passage? And all of a sudden, we realize Paul's talking to some live bodies with some live issues, and he's trying to get them to get along the way you and I and our churches need to learn to get along. Yeah, live bodies with live issues in the 21st century. There is so much more we could talk about, Dr. McKnight, yeah. uh, but our yeah. time is up. I thank you for taking the time to be with us today, and I would certainly recommend our listeners uh, pick up a copy of Reading Romans Backwards, A Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. Thank you once again, and have a wonderful evening. Georgine, great to hear you again and to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Until next time. Bye-bye. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock is our time. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. And portions of our program today are brought to you by... Zero res. Tomorrow we're going to talk with a gentleman who's actually penciled out uh, and done the math on free college, the Green New Deal, um, Medicare for all, whether or not the rich can afford to cover all of that for the rest of us. Uh, But today I wanted to share with you what uh, Chris Edwards, uh, writing for National Review, pointed out about how government is creating the wealth inequality that Uh, is uh, railed against, and rightly so, uh, so often by politicians. Well, they complain loudly about the problem, but their their own policies are actually generating much of it. 
Uh, And Edwards points out that there are economic storm clouds on the horizon. But for now, wages are rising. Jobs are plentiful. Poverty is falling. Um, Those who are running for president need an economic line of attack. So the solution has been to focus on wealth inequality. Senator Bernie Sanders claims that there's been a massive transfer of wealth from the middle class to the top one percent. Senator Elizabeth Warren lambastes America's extreme concentration of wealth. Even the establishment Joe Biden laments um, this wealth gap that exists in the United States of America is so profound now. Now, I'm not suggesting there isn't a wealth gap, but I am suggesting that politicians exploit Uh, the wealth gap without taking any responsibility for the role they play in generating it. Wealth inequality has risen in recent years, but by far less than uh, many in the media and those politicians um, are implying. Well, the scarier claims about inequality usually stem from the flawed data created by French economist Thomas Piketty and his colleagues. More careful studies by other economists and the Federal Reserve Board reveal surprisingly modest changes in wealth inequality given the huge revolutions in globalization and technology that have occurred. And I think it it's worth Considering are increases in wealth inequality the awful thing that uh, many claim? Well, it depends on what causes them. Well, much of the recent modest rise in wealth inequality stems from innovations in our economy that are pulling everyone up. Brian Acton and Jan Combe, for example, they built huge multi-billion-dollar fortunes by creating WhatsApp, which uh, provides free phone service for 1.5 billion users globally. The pair's success may have uh, increased the wealth owned by the top 1%, but their product has created massive consumer value as well. Most of the wealthiest Americans are entrepreneurs who have fueled economic growth, which is clear in examining the 400 list. Wealth created by uh, in this way isn't the zero-sum struggle that uh, some imagine it to be. Well, that's good news. The bad news is that government itself generates wealth inequality in at least two ways that makes us worse off. First, governments give subsidies, regulatory preferences, and other crony capitalist benefits to wealthy insiders. And the recent Fat Leonard scandal, for example, Leonard Francis, he gained hundreds of millions of dollars of government contracts by cozying up to Navy officers and providing them with gifts prostitutes and other favors to get them to do his bidding. The other way that government fuels wealth inequality is a deeper scandal. The expansion of social programs over the decades has undermined incentives for lower and middle income families to save while reducing their ability to save because of higher taxes. Government programs have displaced or crowded out wealth building by all American families but the richest. Politicians complain pretty loudly about wealth inequality, but their own policies are generating wealth inequality. The issue receives very little policy attention, but it is profoundly important and it reveals the hypocrisy of the politics and politicians. Many Americans have saved little for retirement because Social Security discourages them from doing so, as does the heavy 12.4 percent wage that funds the program. Economist Martin Feldstein, he found that every dollar increase in Social Security benefits reduces private savings by about 50 cents. Social Security accounts for a larger share of retirement income for the non-rich than for the rich. So this crowd-out effect increases wealth inequality. In a simulation model, uh, Lawrence Kotiloff uh, estimated that Social Security raises the share of overall wealth held by the top 1% of wealth holders by about 80%. This occurs because the program leaves the non-rich with proportionately less to save, less reason to save, and a larger share of their old age resources in a non-bequeathable um, form. Well, a study by Barris Kamak and Marcus Poschke 
uh, built a model of the U.S. Ec- uh, economy that uh, to estimate the cause of rising wealth inequality. And they found that most of the rise in the top 1% share of wealth in recent decades was caused by technological changes and wage dispersion, but the expansion of Social Security and Medicare caused about one quarter of that increase. They concluded that the redistributive nature of transfer payments was instrumental in curbing wealth accumulation for income groups outside the top 10% and consequently amplified wealth concentration in the U.S. More government benefits result in less private wealth, especially for the non-rich. It's not just Social Security and Medicare that displaces private savings, but also unemployment insurance, welfare, and other social spending. Some social programs have asset tests that deliberately discourage saving. Total federal and state social spending as a share of gross domestic product soared from 6.8% in 1970 to 14.3% in 2018. Now, that increase in handouts occurred over the same period that wealth inequality appears to have increased. Generations of Americans have grown up assuming that government will take care of them when they're sick, unemployed, and retired, so they put too little money aside for future expenses. Across country studies support these conclusions. A 2015 study by Piram Fessler and Martin Schurz examined European data, found that inequality of wealth is higher in countries with a relatively more developed welfare state, given an increase of welfare state expenditure, wealthy inequality, or rather wealth inequality, measured by standards, uh, relative inequality measures, such as um, the, well, I won't even go into that. Well, a study by Credit Suisse uh, found that strong social security programs, good public pensions, free higher education or generous student loans, unemployment and health insurance can greatly reduce the need for personal financial assets. This is one explanation for the high level of wealth inequality we identify in Denmark, Norway and Sweden. The top groups continue to accumulate for business and investment purposes, while the middle and lower classes have a little uh, a less pressing need for personal saving. And that's why it's absurd for politicians uh, to decry wealth inequality and then turn around and demand European style expansions in our social programs. The bigger our welfare state, the more wealth inequality we will have. Now, it's not the only contributing factor, but it is a contributing factor that politicians play a significant role in. The solution is to transition to savings based social programs. Numerous countries have social security systems based on private savings accounts. Chile has unemployment insurance savings accounts. Martin Feldstein, he proposed a savings based approach to Medicare. These assets in uh, these kinds of saving accounts would in, in uh, inheritable would be inheritable, unlike the benefits from current U.S. social programs. Both uh, Sanders and Warren are right to criticize crony capitalism as a cause of wealth inequality. There's nothing wrong with that because it's accurate. But their big government approaches to social policy would have the opposite effect on wealth inequality than what they may believe. And that's worth uh, discussing and considering as well. Well, in an extraordinary and outrageous move endangering the constitutionality mandated independence by the U.S. Supreme Court, five Democratic senators are threatening political retaliation against the court unless it denies the Second Amendment rights of New Yorkers in its first gun case in a decade. Not since 1937, when newly reelected President Franklin Roosevelt proposed adding additional justices to the Supreme Court in a blatant move to produce decisions more favorable to his New Deal agenda, has there been such a serious attempt to change the way the judicial branch of government operates in order to change the outcome of its decisions? In fact, going back even further in history, the threat the uh, senators are posing to the judiciary's independence is arguably the greatest since that um, made by Britain's King George against the 13 British colonies before they became the United States. 
Our Declaration of Independence lists these threats as one justification for the American Revolution. Back in 1937, the Senate Judiciary Committee, led by Roosevelt's fellow Democrats, refused to go along with the with what uh, became known as the court packing scheme. The committee stated in a report on Roosevelt's legislative proposal that it was nothing more than a declaration that when the court stands in the way of a legislative enactment, the Congress may reverse the ruling by enlarging the court. Well, fast forward to today's similar situation. We've got Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, Richard Durbin of Illinois, Maisie Hirano of Hawaii, Kirsten Gillibrand of New York. They've replaced Roosevelt in the role of trying to manipulate the Supreme Court. Well, the senators are threatening the independence of the Supreme Court because they're determined to curtail the constitutional right of Americans to keep and bear arms in a case called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus the city of New York. Well, the legal brief filed in that case by the senators not only threatens the independence of the judiciary, it also threatens the rule of law. The senators are engaging in a form of extortion, warning justices that grave harm will befall the Supreme Court if the justices don't rule the way the senators want. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 16 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Democratic Michigan Representative Rashida Tlaib blamed senior members of her party after she and Democratic Minnesota Representative Ilhan Omar faced backlash from for partnering with a terror-linked group for a, their canceled trip to Israel. The pair held a joint press conference on Monday to address the canceled trip, which Israel barred the lawmakers from making on account of their support for the Uh, anti-Israel boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. The Palestinian-based organization, MIFTA, talked a little bit about it yesterday, uh, which has uh, terror ties and in the past promoted anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, was partially sponsoring that trip. Tlaib dodged responsibility for the partnership when asked about MIFTA at the press conference. Our colleagues that are senior members, some of whom have served multiple terms, actually told us about the organization, said Tlaib, who broke down crying at one point at the press conference. We're not the ones who chose the organization. She added a U.S.-based sponsor organization chose it. But I think there were five members of Congress that actually went on a trip sponsored by the same organization. Well, five House Democrats attended a MIFTA-sponsored trip to Israel in 2016. Uh, Luis Guterres, uh, Dan Kildy, Hank Johnson, Matt Cartwright, and Mark uh, Poken of uh, Wisconsin. The five Democrats uh, met with an alleged member of a Palestinian terrorist group during that trip. Didn't hear much about it that uh, that trip then. Tlaib's chief of staff didn't return an email inquiring which member appointed her and Omar to the organization. National Review writer David French described Tlaib and Omar's partnership with the group as a national scandal, noting that MIFTA had a republished neo-Nazi content and actually published blood libel, posting an article that accuses the uh, Jews of using the blood of Christians in the Jewish Passover. Now, Tlaib and Omar also face criticism for promoting work from an anti-Semitic cartoonist on Instagram in response to the trip's cancellation. Uh, They absolutely should not have uh, lifted up the work of a cartoonist who frequently promotes hate toward Israel, mocks the Holocaust, traffics in anti-Semitic tropes. Doing so legitimizes his bigotry. This is a quote from Jonathan Greenblatt, a former Obama administration official who now heads the Anti-Defamation League, uh, writing on Twitter. So... uh, 
senior Democrats are being blamed by the pair for this uh, scrutiny. Now, Michael Medved, in commenting uh, on all of this, he himself uh, of Jewish uh, descent, wrote that Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib previously embarrassed herself by falsifying the history of the Middle East, suggesting Palestinians provided a welcome, uh, welcoming haven for Jewish refugees during the Holocaust. But every historian acknowledges the local Arab leaders responded to Jewish refugees with murderous attacks, ferocious hatred, and unwavering opposition. Now Tlaib is added again with distorted portrayals of her own family history as well as the general history of her people. Israel had nothing to do with her father and grandfather leaving the Middle East. Her grandfather fled for for Brazil in the 1930s, before Israel was even established. Her late father immigrated to Nicaragua in the early 60s, when the West Bank and East Jerusalem were still ruled by Arab Jordan, not Israel. And while Tlaib emphasizes the suffering of her family under the so-called occupation, it's worth noting that two generations had already found homes in America before that alleged occupation even began. And then Dennis Prager, who is um, Jewish, uh, wrote for the Patriot Post that criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism is. He makes an important distinction to help us better understand when offense should be taken and when not. He writes, imagine a group of people who work to destroy Italy because they claim Italy's origins are illegitimate. Imagine further that these people maintain that all uh, that of all countries in the world, only Italy is illegitimate. And then imagine that these people vigorously deny they are in any way anti-Italian. Would you believe them? Or would you dismiss their argument as not only dishonest, but absurd? Substitute Israel for Italy and Jew for Italian, and you'll understand the dishonesty and absurdity of the argument that one can be anti-Zionist, but not anti-Semitic. But that is precisely what anti-Zionists say. They argue the very existence of a Jewish state in the geographic area known as Palestine, there was never an independent country known as Palestine, is illegitimate. They do not believe any other country in the world is illegitimate, no matter how bloody its origins. And then they get offended when they're accused of being anti-Semitic. How can they make the argument? First, they change the topic. They say it is unfair to charge those who merely criticize Israel with being anti-Semitic. But I don't know anyone who does that. It's a phony argument. Criticism of Israel is fine. Denying Israel's right to exist is not. Anti-Zionism is not criticism of Israel. Anti-Zionism is opposition to Israel's existence. Zionism is the movement for the return of Jews to their ancient homeland, Israel. Over the past 3,000 years, there were two independent Jewish states located in in what is called Israel, but uh, rather both were destroyed by invaders and no Arab or Muslim or any other independent country ever existed in that land, which was only named Palestine by the Romans in an attempt to remove all memory of the Jewish state they destroyed in the year A.D. 70. Second, anti-Zionists claim they can't be anti-Jewish because Zionism has nothing to do with Judaism. That, too, is equally false. It is the same as saying that Italy has nothing to do with being Italian. Judaism has always consisted of three components, God, Torah, and Israel. If Israel isn't part of Judaism, neither is the Bible or God. Third, anti-Zionists claim that Judaism is only a religion. Therefore, Jews are only members of a religion, not a nation. But the Jews are called the nation of Israel repeated in the, repeatedly in the Bible. That is why there is, are irreligious, secular, and even atheist Jews. Because Jews are not only a religion, there are no atheist Christians because Christianity is only a religion. Fourth, the anti-Zionists claim that Israel is illegitimate because it is racist. Uh, this is a charge Israel and American haters make against two of the least racist societies in the world. In the case of Israel, it's, a fa it's fraudulent because A, half of Israel's Jews are not white. B, anyone of any race or ethnicity can become a Jew. C, a one out of every five Israeli is not a Jew. And 
these Israeli citizens, mostly Arab Muslims, have the same rights as Jewish Israelis. And D, Israel's control of the West Bank has nothing to do with race. Israel does not control the West Bank because Palestinians are of another race, but because Palestinians try to destroy Israel in 1967, and they lost the war. The only reason Palestinians do not have their own state has nothing to do with race. They rejected offer, uh, offers to found their own state on five separate occasions since 1948. They've always uh, rejected building a Palestinian state because they have always uh, been more interested in destroying Israel. Fifth, the anti-Zionist, he goes on to write, uh, claim that Israel's origins are illegitimate. The fact that of all the world's 200-plus countries, the only country anti-Zionists declare illegitimate is also the only Jewish country is pretty much all you need to know about their motives. For example, don't they make this claim about Pakistan? In 1947, nine months before the establishment of Israel, India was par- was partitioned into a Muslim state, Pakistan, and a Hindu state, India. Unlike Israel, Pakistan had never existed before. Unlike Israel's founding, which created... Uh, about 700,000 Jewish refugees, uh, refugees from Arab lands and 700,000 Arab refugees from what became Israel. The founding of Pakistan created about 7 million Muslim refugees from India and about 7 million Hindu refugees from Pakistan. And while the highest estimate of Arab deaths in the fighting that took place when Israel announced its establishment is 10,000, the number of deaths as a result of Pakistan's creation is about one million. Given these facts, why is Israel's legitimacy challenged while the legitimacy of Pakistan is not? There's only one answer. Israel is the one Jewish state in the world. So while there are 49 Muslim-majority countries and 22 Arab states, anti-Zionists reject the right of the new Jewish state, the size of New Jersey, to exist. Of course, not all anti-Zionists hate all Jews. But as I wrote at the beginning, if you seek to destroy Italy, you don't have to hate every Italian to be anti-Italian. If you seek to destroy the only Jewish state on earth, you don't have to hate every Jew to be an anti-Semite. Again, a perspective from Dennis Prager on what he uh, suggests is a dishonesty in the back and forth on the uh, conflict between the two congresswomen who were denied access uh, on this particular trip to enter the nation of Israel were well, would have been welcomed on the trip uh, taken by a number of House members the week before and were welcomed if it were for humanitarian purposes rather than for uh, political purposes. You can take whichever side you wish. These are perspectives to consider in sorting through all of the rhetoric. 29 minutes after 5 o'clock is the time when we come back. We're going to talk about how the United States is approaching the Taliban in an effort to put an end to the United States' longest war in Afghanistan. After a period of relative quiescence, uh, Afghanistan burst back into the headlines this month. Current and former administration officials signal that uh, the president's keen to withdraw troops from Afghanistan before the 2020 election. But is that possible? The administration is now reportedly close to signing an interim peace agreement with the Taliban. More when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the administration is currently in talks with the uh, Taliban to try to put an end to hostilities in Afghanistan. There's a growing concern, however, that in a um, fairly public rush for the exits, the president's both alienating U.S. allies in that country and um, uh, vulnerable to signing a bad deal with a partner negotiating in bad faith. Well, the president has never been coy about his desire to end the endless war, as it's being called. Last September, his impatience went with the uh, stalemate in Afghanistan, led him to appoint um, a special uh, representative to for Afghanistan reconciliation. Um, 
I think his name is Khalizad, uh, was given a mandate to hasten a diplomatic resolution and pursue direct talks with the Palestine, which proved willing to reciprocate. Within just a few months, the two sides claim to have reached an agreement on 90 percent of outstanding issues. Well, the Taliban and the U.S. are reportedly now on the verge of signing an agreement covering America's future military presence in the country and a Taliban commitment never to allow Afghan soil to be used for international terrorism. Now, can Taliban actually keep that commitment or are they even interested in doing so? In theory, this would open the door to an elusive holy grail, direct negotiations between the Taliban and the Afghan government. There are lots of good reasons to doubt the intentions of the Taliban and its benefactors in Pakistan. However, if the group is finally willing to negotiate directly with the Afghan government, there's good reason to see what the peace process might produce. Um, what's um, not strategically advisable is uh, publicly signaling that a withdrawal of U.S. forces is necessary or imminent. It neither uh, strengthens the hand of the uh, United States in negotiation nor serves its uh, national interests. So there is a stalemate, uh, but it seems to be an evolving mission. At what point does the U.S. mission cease being the Afghan war and become one of many counterterrorism train and assist missions run by the U.S. across the globe? Well, under the uh, Pentagon's Global Train and Equip Program, the U.S. has over 250 projects that are aimed at improving counterterrorism capabilities of friendly countries. And Afghanistan might be added to that list. In 2019, the administration requested 100 or rather $11.2 billion for counterterrorism aid, including for programs in Bangladesh and Indonesia, Kenya, Ten- uh, Tanzania or Tanzania, as I'm now told it's the correct pronunciation, and Mali. These programs aren't politically contentious in the U.S. because as far as the American public is concerned, their purpose is sound and the financial and human costs are reasonable. But what if the U.S. mission in Afghanistan is already evolving from a war into another high-level train-and-assist mission? How do we distinguish between the two? And that is the challenge for the administration moving forward. Again, with the 2020 election coming up, the president would love to be out of the country. And I think most Americans would love to be out of Afghanistan. The question is whether or not it's prudent to do so and under what circumstances. In other news, at least 23 Texas town towns rather have suffered a coordinated ransomware attack, according to the state's Department of Information Resources. The attack started on Friday morning around Texas in what the department described as the majority of these entities being smaller local governments. Well, ransomware or malicious software opens a new window, delivers uh, via email. It's designed to lock an owner's operating system until a ransom is paid or files are recovered by other means. Now, these attacks have occurred in New York recently, in Louisiana, Maryland, Florida. Um, it cost states and towns well into the millions of dollars. Criminals demand ransom or victims paid off uh, damages. Baltimore estimated ransomware uh, attacks there cost $18.2 million as the city starts to restore its system. Uh, at this time, Texas officials haven't divulged paying uh, or repair costs. Uh, according to experts, the malware uh, com- uh, corrupts computer hardware and potentially uh, equipment. It leaves systems offline, which is costly to communities. And a lot of times it, these things could be avoidable if uh, you are vigilant in keeping up with the protections that are available in these systems. But as in the case, for example, of Baltimore, a simple fix could have prevented what happened. It wasn't done. Texas Governor Greg Abbott ordered a level two escalated response on Friday in the fallout. Uh, Deputy Press Secretary Nalan Tolson 
uh, says of what's happening in that state. And according to the state's emergency management planning guide, the responses are determined by the state's Department of Emergency Management. It's part of a four-step response protocol. And uh, currently the situation is one step below the highest level of alert, a level one emergency. So where it is now moving forward, because it was time sensitive, they've only been given a certain length of time to respond or they will not be able to recover what's been lost or frozen. Uh, Tolson said the Texas Department of Information Resources is leading that response. They're working collaboratively, collaboratively rather, with several groups to address the damage. Governor Abbott is also deploying cybersecurity experts to affected areas in order to assess the damage and help bring local government entities back online. Uh, various federal and state agencies are supporting Texas in the wake of this latest attack, including FEMA, the Department of Homeland Security, Texas A&M's Information Technology and Electronic Crime Unit, Texas Military Department that includes branches of the National Guard. Several massive company-based cybersecurity breaches this year hit shareholders and consumers pretty hard. According to IBM's 2019 Cost of a Data Breach report, the average data breach exposed 25,575 sensitive consumers. Consumer records carried a total of $3.92 million cost. And the study says mega breaches of more than 50 million records like Facebook's Cambridge Analytica scandal cost about $388 million uh, uh, to the company in 2019. It is a developing story. And we'll try to keep you updated as information is made available. Again, it's not yet clear what the state will do in response to this latest uh, challenge. But in many cases, the decision is made to pay this, the ransom because it costs less to do that than to, to restore the system uh, without it. In other news, a former North Carolina sheriff's deputy may be the first to file a lawsuit alleging he's facing discrimination for his commitment to the Billy Graham rule. Manuel Torres, he's 51, and he claims in a federal lawsuit that requested a religious accommodation from the Lee County, North Carolina Sheriff's Office, where he was employed from 2012 to 2017 after he was ordered to train a female deputy. Now, the training included the requirement that he spend significant periods of time alone in his patrol car with the female officer trainee. Now, a deacon at East Sanford Baptist Church in Sanford, North Carolina, Torres holds the strong and sincere religious belief that the Holy Bible prohibits him, a married man, from being alone for extended periods of time with a female who's not his wife, according to the lawsuit filed in uh, in July in U.S. District Court. Well, the practice isn't being uh, of not being alone with a member of the opposite sex other than one spouse is called the Billy Graham rule. You recall that in his ministry, he made the decision that he would not put himself in a position where he could either be misunderstood or vulnerable or any of those things in honor of the late evangelist. That's what it's called. He adopted the policy early in his ministry to avoid temptation, accusations of immorality and so on. And while some say the practice demonstrates integrity and protects marriages, others claim it can be discriminatory. In fact, the vice president was uh, criticized for assuming a similar policy. Well, according to uh, Torres lawsuit, the Lee County Sheriff's Office uh, vacillated between granting and denying the requested accommodation for weeks before terminating him without an explanation. Well, Torres also claims a colleague failed to respond to his call for backup at a multi um, vehicle accident in an unsafe area because of the requested accommodation. 
Well, Howard Friedman, a University of Toledo law professor who blogs about religious liberty at Religious Clause, says he is unaware of any other court cases involving the Billy Graham rule, but noted Torres' lawsuit is part of a growing number of cases in which religious freedom clashes with non-discrimination norms. Now, this is a public official who is invoking religious free exercise to avoid carrying out a part of his employment duties. Friedman said in an email to Christianity Today that in that context, it is similar to the long-running Kim Davis saga in which a Kentucky court clerk refused to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Her job is, in large part, issuing marriage licenses. In this case, um, the uh, sheriff's uh, deputy's job is, in large part, being... uh, Paired with another officer, now, Robbie Gibson, Torres pastor at East Stanford, um, or rather Sanford Baptist Church, says uh, that uh, Mr. Torres is a man who is genuinely trying to walk his faith out in everyday life. The Graham rule, he says, is the best approach for avoiding temptation and guarding against false accusations of impropriety. And in the Me Too movement or, or season. Uh, that extra safeguard may be merited. Still, after news of his lawsuit broke, the church's Facebook page was inundated with negative comments, including some calling the congregation bigots and oppressors of women. You cannot live in a Me Too world and then force people to act and live in such a way that can uh, they can be accused without any defense, Gibson went on to say, as when an employee is told, I'm going to put you out alone all night long in a car with someone. Well, Vice President Pence, as I mentioned, a former Mississippi gubernatorial candidate, Robert Foster are among public figures to draw critique for stating they follow the Billy Graham rule. Now, in Billy Graham's case, this was the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. He was not employed by an outside entity. He had the freedom and flexibility to choose how he was going to relate to others. So it was a different set of circumstances than what we're seeing here. But the the attempt to uh, live in integrity and to avoid any temptation or, or misunderstanding is the the core value that these um, examples have attempted to uphold. Uh, Despite criticism of the rule, the New York Times poll found most American women and nearly half of men think it's inappropriate to have dinner alone with someone of the opposite gender who is not their spouse. About a quarter of those polled found it inappropriate to have a work meeting alone with a colleague of the opposite uh, sex. Torres allegedly alleges rather religious discrimination against his former employer, as well as two North Carolina police departments. Um, and uh, he uh, said that they did not hire him after the Lee County told them about his request for religious accommodation. Well, the lawsuit all asks the court to award him $300,000 in compensatory damages, plus more than 15000 in punitive damages. The defendants have yet to file their response to the suit. Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act requires a reasonable accommodation in cases like Torres' According to Friedman, yet the female employee who has uh, denied training due to the Billy Graham rule might also have grounds to claim discrimination on the basis of sex if her trainer was given an exemption. So this is a thorny case. It certainly uh, is not the first, at least conflict, maybe the first court case. And we'll uh, continue to follow uh, the case to find out what happens next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. From time to time, I like to bring to our attention places where the, the church is experiencing persecution. And one of the places we may not think about is in Mexico, uh, where criminal gangs are targeting churches. And a Mexican pastor was shot and killed this Sunday while at the pulpit during a Sunday service. Now, this, I suppose, is not 
altogether unusual in the world, but in our hemisphere, to learn that a pastor was targeted because of his role as a a shepherd in the the church, I think merits some attention. The pastor was in southwest Mexico. He was shot and killed during a church service. This was on Sunday. Uh, The churches have apparently been targeting uh, faith leaders. Um, These are criminal gangs, and according to international watchdog charity Christian Solidarity Worldwide, Pastor um, Alfre Lichter Cruz Conseco, he was preaching from the pulpit at the church, Fraternidad Christiana Church in the town of Tlaxic. Oh, I don't quite know the right pronunciation of the name, but it's in Oaxaca State. When he was shot at point blank range, he died while he was being transported to a local hospital. His attacker was arrested after congregants prevented his escape, thankfully. We extend our deepest condolences to the family and congregation of Pastor Cruz Conseco, the chief executive uh, from Merwin County in a statement said the fact that he was targeted while in the pulpit is particularly shocking. A translated statement posted at the uh, church Facebook page read, we regret the departure of uh, Pastor Alfrey Lichter Cruz Conseco, friend and brother in Christ, very loved by his congregation. Although the motive remains uncertain, uh, CSW that advocates for Christians in over 20 countries worldwide noted that the killing comes on the heels of a recent series of attacks that have targeted religious leaders in that region. Among the recent attacks um, against faith, um, faith leaders was the kidnapping of a pastor, Pastor Aaron Ruiz, uh, who ran a shelter for Cuban immigrants in Nuevo Laredo and was abducted uh, earlier this month. We also remain concerned for the well-being of Pastor Ruiz and urge the Mexican government to spare no effort in ensuring his safe return, investigating all of these crimes and prosecuting those responsible. CSW warned that the expansion of criminal groups into Mexico, as well as the climate of impunity when it comes to crimes they commit, has led to an increase in violence against Protestant and Catholic leaders because they're viewed as a threat to the criminal groups. According to CSW, again, the organization that oversees uh, Christian persecution in various places around the the world, 10 religious leaders were killed in Mexico in 2018. As questions have been raised as to why church leaders in a predominantly Catholic country are increasingly being abducted, harmed, or killed, USA Today reported last April that at least 23 religious leaders had been killed in Mexico since 2012. Earlier this week, the Catholic Multimedia Center reported that at least 26 Catholic priests had been killed since 2012. So the overall number has to be higher uh, than what was originally reported. We urge the international community to engage with the Mexican government on these matters and to recognize the role that many religious leaders play, not only as leaders of their churches, but also as voices for peace, for justice and integrity, and as human rights defenders, uh, uh, Thomas concluded in the statement. Mexico ranks as the 39th worst country in the world when it comes to Christian persecution as organized crime in that country continues to go unconfronted, according to Open Doors USA and their 2019 World Watch List. According to Open Doors, Christians, their leaders and church buildings in Mexico are increasingly becoming victims of attacks, threats, extortion and other forms of coercion throughout the entire country. Due to the government's inability to confront violence, some Christians feel forced to implement their own security strategies against acts of Christian persecution, including engaging leaders of criminal groups themselves. That according to Open Doors USA in their fact sheet. Organized crime primarily targets priests and pastors, while indigenous power holders pressure Christians through fines, denying basic community service and imprisonment. The state attorney general um, in 
uh, Guerrero has falsely implied that priests were engaged in criminal activity that further inflamed the religious tension there. In its 2017 annual report, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom voiced concern about the targeting of Catholic priests and other religious leaders by cartels such as Los Zetos and Knights Templar. Uh, The report noted that over the span of a week in September of 2016, three priests were found dead. Religious leaders are targeted because they speak out against the gangs and or because they refuse to include gang spiritual mythology in their sermons, according to another observer uh, overseeing the safety and concerns of uh, Christian uh, organizations throughout the uh, throughout the country. I bring it up in Christian Solidarity Worldwide, the organization that brought this particular case to our attention and uh, does work all around the world in supporting those who are facing persecution of various kinds, that the church is still facing persecution and that we who face uh, perhaps challenges to our faith, uh, maybe there are pressures, um, uh, but we don't experience to the degree that other parts of the world experience real persecution, that we have an opportunity to remember them in prayer, to advocate for them when possible and when it's in uh, their best interest, um, and to remember uh, that there are voices that cry out. And as I've mentioned here many times when I've traveled abroad and met with those in the persecuted church, primarily in Asia, the expectation was that we had been praying for them because that's what you do when you were part of the body of Christ. Before having an opportunity to say whether or not that was the case, we were often thanked uh, because they recognize the connection that we have to one another perhaps better than we do. And they understood that part of the reason they were able to persevere under very, very difficult circumstances was because of the prayers of saints all around the globe. So I mentioned this, um, this Mexican pastor and others who are facing persecution there and around the world so that we might faithfully uh, pray for them as we are members one of another. We've got a few things uh, developing tomorrow on the program. Among them, we're talking with a young man who has actually done the math as to whether or not some of these promises, the Green New Deal, uh, free college, Medicare for all, when you do the math, is it possible to enact all of these policies on the uh, backs of the very wealthy? And we're often said that uh, by forcing them to pay their, in quotes, fair share, that the rest of us will benefit. We're going to look at whether or not the uh, the numbers actually uh, uh, work on all of that. On Thursday, we're going to talk with Mary Graybar. She is the author of Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History that turned a generation against America. The book is a regnery history book, and she will join us on Thursday. On Friday, we're looking forward to a traditional fun Friday program. I know for many of you it's a disappointment when that doesn't happen, but we certainly will. Uh, we're planning to do that this Friday and looking forward to uh, to sharing that with you. So I hope you will... Uh, you will join us. If you didn't have the opportunity to hear the four o'clock hour, I had a conversation with Scott McKnight. He is the author of Reading Romans Backwards. And while the title might be somewhat puzzling, uh, he uh, in the subtitle points out that a gospel of peace in the midst of empire requires that we understand the, the major points, the major themes in Romans that we may overlook by reading from front backward or, or to back. Anyway, you'll have an opportunity to hear that if you'd like on our podcast, and you can find that at kpdq.com, that conversation, and for that matter, every conversation on this program. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.